0: "This week's researchers have unveiled a new superconductor, a superconductor which they say works at room temperature. Scientists have been working on identifying new superconductors for decades, materials which can transmit electricity without pesky friction like resistance, and the ones discovered in the past only work at super cold temperatures, so this would make this material much more useful applications like strong magnets used in MRIs, magnetically floating trains, even even nuclear fusion. But there is a bit of a wrinkle, and Sophie Bushwick is here to iron it all out. See what I did there, Sophie? (laughs) Sophie Bushwick is the technology editor at Scientific American. She's here with me in our studios in New York. Welcome back, Sophie.
1: Thanks. It's great to be here. And I'm really excited to be talking about this topic. I think it's very interesting. Well,
0: let's get right into it. First, tell us what superconductivity is.
1: So superconductivity uh, is when electricity can travel through a material without losing any of its energy in the form of heat. So it's 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 imagine if you had a wire carrying electricity, say, in a power grid across the country. Right. As it moves, the wire is going to heat up a little bit. It's going to shed some of this energy in the form of heat. And if you had a su- that wire made out of a superconducting material, it would have zero energy loss. And so you can imagine more efficient energy transmission, but also, you know, a computer that never overheats and because of superconductors are They they exhibit some weird behavior, including pushing out magnetic fields. So if you've ever seen an experiment or performed an experiment where you have a magnet levitating above a superconductor, that's a result of that uh, phenomenon.
0: Cool. Yes, I have done that (laughs) a couple of times. All right. So what's exciting about this news then?
1: So this news is exciting because to get a superconductor to work, you've got to have it in extremely controlled conditions. It's either so there's some materials that can be superconducting when they're chilled to very low temperatures. Uh, And there's others that can be superconducting at room temperature. But you have to squeeze them in this vice-like device called a diamond anvil that raises the pressure around them to, you know... Uh, roughly a quarter or half of the pressure found at the center of the earth oh right so it's not super practical for building you know train right. tracks for a maglev train out of this stuff so this new material is interesting because not only is it working at room temperature but it's it's supposed to be working at a pressure that's not quite room pressure but it's uh a, it's like a hundred times less pressure than is required for other materials like this mm-hmm.
0: and it's at room temperature right that's, that's right a, that's an important thing
1: yes that's definitely an important thing as well
0: mm-hmm uh, but I said there's there's a wrinkle here. There's some controversy about the researchers who did this.
1: That's right. So the research team that, did, that, that put this out had previously published a study about a different superconducting material that worked at room temperature. And that was published in 2020 in Nature. But um, other researchers in the superconductivity community started pointing out problems with the data that had to do with, for a lot of these measurements, when you take the measurement, you can't just... Have used the raw data because there's all this background noise. So you have to measure the background noise, measure the signal from this superconducting sample, and then subtract out the background. And they said that there's some discrepancies here in this process that don't make sense. And as a result of a lot of back and forth between these researchers, Nature retracted that paper. And that's not the only paper to have weird issues with the data from the same these same researchers. So for that reason, there are people in the superconductivity community who are saying we're not necessarily going to trust these results on face value. And
0: and you talked to them. What did they say it would take to trust these results.
1: So they think it would take replication, which is something that the authors also say they want. The idea that another lab not affiliated with this one could try to make the same material, test it for superconductivity and find the same results. So replication is what would it would take to make them uh, as excited as the authors
0: are. Uh, you know, it reminds me a little bit, just a little bit of cold fusion back, back in the day <laughs> where you could not replicate the results. People couldn't do it, but this, right. this they might they might be able to, right?
1: They might. And also this isn't that this isn't unique to this particular particular study. So back in the 80s, there was the discovery of superconductors that still had to be chilled, but not to quite as low temperatures. And the researchers who published the paper on it for the, about the first six months after they published the paper, there wasn't a ton of excitement. It was only when those results were replicated that people were like, wow, I think you're really onto to something here. And the original researchers eventually won a Nobel Prize for wow. it.
0: Wow. I'm tempted to say that's really cool, but I'll try to <laughs> I'll try to stay. It with. is
1: literally and <laughs> metaphorically cool.
0: Thank you for bailing me out. There's another story getting a lot of uh, buzz this week, ah. speaking of dad jokes. Bumblebees. Bumblebees are capable of creating and transmitting culture. Tell us about that.
1: Right, so we think of culture as something humans have, but if you define culture the way scientists do, which is socially learning a behavior within a population, then they've actually demonstrated this in a bunch of different species, and now they've demonstrated it in bumblebees. So the way the thing that they wanted to transmit was the ability to solve this puzzle box. Mm -hmm. It's this kind of cool apparatus where there's this sugar solution under a lid, and in order to access it, you can push either a red tab in one direction or a blue tab in another. And then they took some bees from different colonies and taught them how to solve it in a specific way, either the red tab method or the blue-tab method, and then they put them back in their hives. And sure enough, the bees that knew how to do it taught the other bees in their colony, but they taught them the specific method they'd learned. So even though either method would work, the bees in a colony that had learned to do the blue-tab method would do the blue-tab method. And if they accidentally did the red-tab method and it worked, they wouldn't necessarily pick that up. They might do it and solve it, but then they would go back to the blue-tab way that they knew. They're culturally chosen way.
0: why why would Yeah, let's talk about the definition of culture. Why do we call this culture that the bees have culture?
1: Well, we have to talk about, if you're trying to define something like culture, which is such a broad category and you're a scientist, you're like, well, let's give this a good definition. So it's a a socially learned behavior, right? They learned it from the demonstrator bees that had been trained. And it was used within this set population. So it was used within the population of the specific colony. If you went to another colony that had learned from a different Demonstrator B They would do that method instead. So you can mm-hmm. see, think of these colonies as having different cultures when it comes to solving this puzzle box. And you
0: know, that doesn't sound so uh, weird because bees live in big colonies. Like the ants live in colonies. You'd think there is a culture
1: Absolutely. that's
0: developing, right?
1: Right. And there's also more complex communication than we would have expected. So not bumblebees, but honeybees do a, a dance called the waggle dance where they can teach other, uh, other members of the colony where to find a source of nectar. So it's clear that what's going on among animals is Communication and learning—that's more complex than we used to think they were capable of. Which kind of, you know, makes you think that all the things we think of, oh, well, only humans can do this. Eh, it turns yeah. out, in a lot of ways, we're
0: not so special. They have some culture, yes, they <laughs> do. And this next story raises uh, more questions than it answers. I'm talking about a new analysis into tree rings, shows that what scientists one thought once thought were solar flares might actually be. They're caused by something else. Tell us about. What do we know about what's going on here?
1: This is super cool. So trees absorb carbon dioxide, as we know, but sometimes uh, a teeny, teeny, tiny fraction of the carbon that they take in is a radioactive isotope of carbon, and that uh, the, those radioactive uh, molecules are, are formed from sometimes from. Uh, uh, humans doing our human thing, mm-hmm. you know, testing nuclear power or weapons. But sometimes it comes from cosmic radiation, which we think of as coming from like big solar flares right. from the sun. Right. And if you look at the historical record preserved in tree rings, you can see where historically there were big solar flares. But when researchers started studying these events called Miyake events, they think that they could also be caused by things like maybe a comet passing by, maybe a far off neutron star, or even a supernova.
0: So, so I guess to sum it up then, they're, they're not quite sure.
1: They're not quite sure. The mystery continues. Oh, uh, but that. it's a fascinating topic of Scientists study.
0: Scientists love that. Yeah. Uh, your next story you brought us is about some unexpected solutions to a problem we've talked about quite a bit on the show, and that's melting mountain glaciers. Your colleagues at Scientific American, Amanda Ruggeri, she uh, wrote about some extreme measures to save glaciers. Tell us about some of these measures. They sound very oh, Go ahead.
1: Some so, of this is a little, is a little <laughs> out there, right? So one idea is just... Making extra snow, cover those glaciers right. with a little extra snow, help replenish them. Um, the problem is, of course, it takes energy to make snow and it takes water. So researchers are developing snow-making methods that rely more on things like gravity to help the process along and make them less uh, energy-intensive. But another option is just take some white paint, paint some rocks, <laughs> have those rocks reflect the sunlight back into the sky.
0: Cheap. Cheap. You get enough paint, right?
1: Right, but you know, not as effective as say. What if you could cover the whole glacier in a big white blanket that would insulate it from the sun and reflect those rays away?
0: You know, there, were the, there was a there was a team of uh, Christo and Jean Claude. They were artists back in the day. They they covered buildings and work of art with big sheets and stuff. They're not among us now, but they that would fit right in for what they were doing.
1: <laughs> Absolutely, but of course, there the problem is that glaciers are. Big. Even shrinking, these glaciers are still very, very large. It would take you know more than a billion dollars to cover just the thousand ah, largest glaciers yeah. in Switzerland with blankets like these. So right. again, that's more appropriate for sort of small areas as opposed to big ones.
0: Finally, let's end uh, with some fun fact. You'll uh, you'll be sure you want to share over the weekend with friends. Scientists identified the worms you sometimes find in a bottle of mezcal.
1: That's right. They did a genetic analysis of the quote unquote worms found in uh, 21 different bottles. And I say quote unquote because they're not actually <laughs> they're worms. Not worms. They're not What are they? They are the larva of a moth and these are ca- they're called unfortunately, I, I'm going to contradict myself here, they're, uh, the name of the larva colloquially is the red agave worm. Mm-hmm. So people call them that. But they are not worms. They are moth larvae. And in fact, they turn into cream colored moths once they reach adulthood. So the red color is only in their larval
0: state. How, how did they discover this?
1: Well, they were sitting around a bar and they said, you know, I I wonder... And then they grabbed, you know, they grabbed some bottles of of, of mescal and they decided to do genetic testing on the uh, on the on the larva inside. And some of them they couldn't genetic test, they had actually been baked before they were put into the bottle. Oh. So those they just had to look at and say, "Well, can we identify the characteristics and the physical uh, traits of this of this insect that could help us tell us what it is?" I
0: wonder if this idea came before or after drinking a couple of margaritas on the weekend.
1: <laughs> I think we'll never know. It's another mystery of science.
0: Something we have to perform on our own (laughs) (laughs) Thank, thank, thank you Sophie thanks for having me Sophie Bushwick technology editor at Scientific American based in New York